You are now tuned into the Hip Hop Learners Podcast, a place for conversations on hip hop literature, both scholarly as well as general audiences. Before we begin today, I would just like to take a moment out to let you all know that the podcast is now available on all platforms, all major platforms anyhow. This has been the case for a couple weeks now, however, I did end up forgetting to give you guys an update in the last episode, so as of now, you can listen to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Amazon Alexa devices through TuneCore, as well as through the OG Podbean network where the show is hosted. I'd really appreciate it if you can give the podcast a thumbs up or a like on whichever platform you are tuned into. It helps the show grow, and which in turn will end up keeping this a more active thing down the road. So, getting into today's podcast, today's guest is yet another Canadian hip-hop scholar, this time by the name of Dr. Charity Marsh. Charity is a professor at the University of Regina in Saskatchewan, and in the past she has written extensively on Indigenous studies within Canada and has contributed to some of the most seminal texts on Canadian hip-hop, generally within the confines of Indigenous hip-hop, as well as the role gender has to play in hip-hop as well. In 2020, Charity, alongside Mark V. Campbell, edited and published the first scholarly collection on Canadian hip-hop to date under the name We Still Hear, Hip-Hop North of the 49th Parallel. In this podcast, we discuss the collection and the process of putting something like this together, as well as her own contributions to the collection that she has authored. This was a very exciting and thought-provoking conversation for me, and I hope you all enjoy it as well. Lastly, before we begin, Dr. Marsh would like to acknowledge that she lives, works, plays, and parents two kiddos on Treaty 4 lands. Treaty 4 is home to the Nahayawak, Ashinabek, Lakota, Dakota, Nakota peoples, as well as the homeland of the Métis peoples. I just wanted to start by congratulating you on the publication of the new book. Uh, for those listening at home, it's called We Still Hear Hip Hop North of the 49th Parallel. It's an edited collection of essays on Canadian hip hop, um, edited by yourself, Charity Marsh, and Mark V. Campbell. Um, it's a fascinating read through. I think it's a really important addition to the work being done here on Canadian hip hop. So, congratulations and thank you for putting this one together. Thank you. It's it's definitely been an exciting work and a lengthy uh, but important process. Yeah, I've been working on my project. Um, I said this kind of before we started, but since uh, January of 2018, and I've I've recognized a lot of the the issues that are brought up within the the contents of the book, um, but. I've recognized the the challenge of, of putting something like this together. Um, this is an area that's really underdeveloped and underappreciated. Um, and there hasn't really been a whole lot of work on this subject. Um, so going through and um, kind of building your own primary sources and kind of doing grassroots research in a lot of ways rather than looking at um, a series of secondary sources that are already available on the subject is um, is quite a different way of doing research, I think, than a lot of other areas or disciplines. And it's um, it's rewarding, but it's it's challenging. And I, I I think I to some degree, at the very least, recognize what uh, what putting something like this um, together kind of means. Um, so it's it's hard work, but again, thank you. I, as somebody that's actually working on Canadian hip hop and is um, is always looking to learn more about Canadian hip hop. A, a book like this is is right, not only right up my alley, but I, I just think it's incredible to to be able to get my hands on something like this and get my hands on it while I'm still working on my project. Um, it's not like it came out ten years afterwards or anything. This is this is right when I'm the most interested in this subject material, and it's um, it's been a blast to be able to go through. So again, I I'll say this a thousand times, I'm sure throughout the conversation, but thank you. It's it's been uh, it's been quite the 
I think that there is, uh, in talking about the need or thinking about the way we did research, and I think a number of the authors, it's very evident the contributors here, a lot of them are hands-on, in-community-based hip-hop arts projects or programs, and that work definitely takes time to sit back once to you build your relationships, you engage in in the actual program or project, and then you sit back and reflect. And to, so I think the length of time or how that research comes about is indeed very, um, uh, it's a it's a longer process than other kinds of research for sure, but certainly rewarding and, and rich. And that is one of the things I'm very I'm very proud about in this or uh, proud of in this book is that a lot of that comes through in many of the chapters and from the work of many of the contributors, um, which is is always exciting to see research coming out of. Uh, community initiatives, and often yeah. at the at the um, at the request or at the, the that those kernels, that primary need or want or desire of this work comes from the community, and that's key. A hundred percent. I will have introduced you more formally during the introduction for the podcast itself, but I wanted to get a little bit more of a background on how you kind of arrived here. Um, even before this collection was edited and published, um, you had published on hip-hop studies prior. What kind of got you interested in in hip-hop studies and the culture as a point of study? Um, what's what's your background with hip-hop? Okay, so with hip-hop, it's interesting. Um, certainly, I grew up loving hip-hop, uh, but one of the things initially I did and spent a lot of time in my um, master's and my PhD was really focusing on other kinds of music. So my MA was really focused on Bjork's uh, 1997 album, Homogenic. And then for my PhD research, it was focused on, I was in Toronto, it was that time, and it was really focused on rave culture and what was happening and the policing uh, of rave culture um, in that period of 1999-2000. And so uh, what happened, though, for me around a shift in research, I was coming to the end of that project, but I I, I was hired at the University of Regina. And so I moved from Toronto to Regina, Saskatchewan, and when I arrived here, I was one of the first, if not the first, popular music scholar that had been hired uh, in the province. And um, so I think people were pretty excited about the possibilities. And one of the things that happened immediately, uh, as soon as I basically drove across the country and landed, was uh, I was asked about the kinds of research I do and if I would be willing to do research around uh, hip-hop, and in particular hip-hop through an Indigenous lens. And primarily I was asked by a lot of different stakeholders, whether they were teachers or uh, social workers or health practitioners or community members, elders, um, even policing around questions that were specifically around hip-hop and, and, and the relationship of hip-hop to with Indigenous youth here in this place. 
Um, and so as a, as a person who is a community-based researcher, uh, I was a new, I was, I was a new person in this community, uh, new to this, to this land, to treaty, uh, uh, here where we are in, in Saskatchewan. So to be asked for a very particular kind of research by the community within which I had now engaged was really important. And it allowed me a sense of, okay, so here as a researcher, here's a way that I can um, come into this community and, and give back to the community and, and engage and build relationships um, with the people here that maybe would would put me in a path on a path that actually um, made sense for this place that particular time. As I said, I was coming to the end of a my a very large project that I had spent five or six years on. Um, it was time for something new, and it was time to think about how I was going to make a home in this new uh, location, and um, and. To be asked by so many different people, so many different stakeholders, and then to be asked uh, specifically by one group, a high school here in the city, uh, to build a help to help build a hip hop project to build curriculum um, that would be uh, engaged and, and used, embedded within uh, a high school here, Scott Collegiate. It was um, an important uh, step in place for me to begin here. And so, as a researcher, as a as a music lover and fan all my life, um, it wasn't when I began the sort of scholarly academic path. I didn't necessarily think about that I would be doing research on hip hop. Sure. But I think that that was really that's a really important moment as a researcher to. Um, to engage in sort of an ethical process of um, creating new relations and bringing something and serving the communities within which um, I was now located. And so to me, that was key. And it's what has led me now on this. Uh, it's been, that was since 2004. So here we are, 2021. Um, that's, how long I have been researching and writing and thinking about and engaged in hip hop, um, particularly from a community-based platform. And so building hip hop programs, um, opening up my interactive media and performance labs, the imp labs, which are often referred to as the hip hop labs. So, and in that, um, thinking about that place, thinking about the imp labs and, and uh, how I wanted to create this space, it was really thinking about how can I create a research space but that is completely open to anyone in the community that becomes a kind of gathering place for people of all ages engaged in hip-hop or uh, other kinds of creative practices, music-making, and so as part of my research program, this much larger research program, I built labs that had, you know, an interactive DJ studio, beat making labs. Uh, we ran a series of workshops, which are still running. Um, 
all these years later where we facilitate knowledge for anyone that around how to make a beat, how to write a rap, how to um, DJ, how to dance, you know, how to engage in all kinds of processes um, that are, that were specifically geared one towards hip hop and then other kinds of popular music for. So it really was a sort of a, a domino effect. I arrived, I was asked uh, by the community. And then from that place, I built um, a research program that made sense and where the questions were coming from the communities in particular from a lot of the um, uh, indigenous communities that I worked with and other communities that I worked with that were very specific kinds of questions to look at. And then of course, building programs and projects and working with so many uh, young people um, and facilitating workshops, working with artists that were so generous and open and excited uh, and then, you know, and creating the, the resources, the infrastructure to do that work, um, to, to do that sort of labor of love and passionate, uh, a place where you had, even in the community, ours, the BMP Labs community program that I still have running, however, differently right now because of COVID, I have to say, we're not. <laughs> it's like very strange. Yeah, however, yeah. Um, you know, in regular, the regular time is um, it, it is a place where you have you know very talented professional musicians working alongside amateurs or people who've never touched uh, the gear or written a beat or uh, you know and it's it's beautiful and you see this kind of really important improvisation and play that happens and that is um, and well, and that that was really uh, a, the beginning of of my work in hip hop research specifically. Um, yeah, I find it fascinating that it seems like both of the paths that you're kind of immersed in as of now seem to have almost been kind of um, kind of placed onto you in a, in a way, and now you kind of find yourself at an intersection of both indigenous studies and hip hop studies, um, and. I, I don't know. I, I find that fascinating. Not only do I find it fascinating, but I find it fascinating that you end up pulling from Toronto to, to Saskatoon and you end up finding this kind of new research kind of landscape there in in um, in Saskatchewan. Sorry, you, you're located over Regina, not Saskatoon, but out of uh, out of the province anyhow. And as I've been going through my work, one of the things that I found um, just incredible was the, the community in Saskatchewan in terms of the hip hop community. That was something that I didn't know. It wasn't even something that I ever would have expected or anticipated. Um, I, I kind of went into this project not knowing a whole lot about Canadian hip hop, but I've done, I was kind of within the music journalism sphere anyhow, and had, um, had known of some artists here and there, and I knew that there was a scene in Manitoba, and specifically in Brandon because of Peanuts and Corn, and what McEnroe and a lot of those guys had done, um, and I knew that there was a little bit of scene in Winnipeg with Freak Show and some of those artists, but I really didn't know a whole lot about Canadian hip hop, and, um, I would have thought, maybe Toronto. Um, I knew that there was a scene in Halifax as well in the early 2000s, late 90s with Anticon and Buck 65 and, uh, and 6-2. So I knew that there was a scene there. I knew there was a scene in Vancouver with Battleaxe. So I kind of had in my mind where uh, where the project was going to end up going. And 
it was very quickly um, into the project that I that I realized that wait I have to redraw my map of how I want this thing to look um, because there was a couple different areas that I just didn't expect um, but the major one was specifically Saskatoon but Saskatchewan as a whole just had a really really rich hip hop scene that was going on for so long I find it amazing that when you went there that you you were the first um popular music scholar to to kind of be working within that field um in the province because now that i'm so immersed into this kind of field in this project i see that saskatchewan as a province has, has large music roots it's um it's something that's been very kind of prevalent there for a very very long time and they've made huge impacts in the the scene nationally and, and probably internationally in a lot of ways. Think of people even the hip hop scene in Saskatoon, like Factor and what Sideroad Records has done, selling overseas in Germany and Japan, and having people like Epic uh, go over and um, do records in Russia, for example. There's clearly a scene there. Um, I I don't know. I, I find your story fascinating, nevertheless. I would say too, it's really the one of the things that I here and I think about too is in these the way scenes are understood and and um, acknowledged and represented and of course right there's I think there's also something to be said for um, you know thinking about the prairie provinces as this flyover province and that they're not like these massive urban centers sure. and so we still have this sort of um, you know, strange uh idea that hip hop is has to be or has been connected historically to these urban centers so yes toronto vancouver for sure we have that i almost like even a sense of east west that yeah. plays out but i mean if you look like yes the richness of what has been happening in pockets uh especially um in, across the prairies um and i i would say you know there there is an in, there's an entire uh, group of, of young, oh, they were initially when they began, they're young people um, that uh, gravitated towards uh, hip hop and in particular sort of more that kind of politically, political based hip hop. I mean, those are very hard generalizations to make, like thinking about how we understand that. But sure. I don't want to say underground because that doesn't work very well either. But um, this kind of politics of, of resistance, the politics of like taking up and thinking about um, these sort of problem and like inequalities and, and social justice kinds of, of concerns and issues. And so, yes, you get, get a number of things happening there in the production, uh, some really great things, like, of course, you talked about factor, et cetera, but even drawing on like people like Equal, like Lindsay Knight and the, yeah ongoing work that she has contributed to the sort of political music and the music scene uh, in Saskatchewan across the prairies. And then of course, recognized, often recognized much more internationally. And this is one of the things I think we still struggle with in lots of genres uh, in, in across Canada, where um, there's uh less of a recognition maybe here in at home like across the nation or around the nation i should say not just across but then of course recognize internationally differently and acknowledged and and, and um celebrate differently but one of the things there uh, the other thing i i'm thinking about and i think you know the reason i bring up um lindsay for example is like 
the what else we saw so when I talk and I've talked with Lindsay quite a lot and you know thinking about her role models and not just like within the sort of you know uh, the mythology or the history of hip-hop in the way that we think because certainly there are all of those um, you know we talk about the cassette tapes and like hearing them and being um, blown away and then of course she talks about how that impacted her but even like role models for her like Alita Kinney Star right and thinking about uh, Alita's contribution to uh, hip-hop and then I think about um, all on the west coast you know these incredible powerful uh, women contributing to hip-hop um, in a variety of different ways, not just necessarily musically, but in other artistic ways as well. And this is something that I think I asked Tanya Willard about, specifically in the chapter on Beat Nation. Yeah. Uh, and around what is at what was at stake there and what was happening, that there was so much um, really exciting and, and political and strong contributions coming out, uh, in particular by uh, Indigenous women both in the sort of in the Salish, like on the West Coast, but also here in Saskatchewan. And so and looking at that, those contributions, and then looking at um, the role modeling that happened within communities and, of course, across. And I know that Lindsay talks about Alita as one of her, her role models. And then, I, and then, of course, Lindsay working with uh, T-Runs, Tara Campbell, and now her, Lindsay, being a role model uh, for her. And so looking at these how that um, the importance of the work that's being done, that the recognition of this uh, of these music uh, pockets and, and contributions, I think is, is definitely key. And so it's really nice to hear, you know, people um, opening up and becoming aware that, you know, the music making that happens is not just tied to those, to these big large urban centers that, you know, tend to be recognized uh, prominently. Um, and so it's really nice to hear that opening up and, and our, our thoughtfulness about maybe, you know, opening up and paying attention to other, um, the other areas, geographical areas. As, I mean, you know, for me, it was when I heard people or people would talk, think, talk to me about, um, this is quite early on in, in the work that I did, um, what you know, really, hip hop happens there, and and both in Regina and Saskatchewan, um, and then also in in Nunavut. You know, for example, when I was talking about hip hop that was going on in in Tulumit or in Pangasin uh, uh, or you know Bay or it's people that it, it sort of was this wow factor. Like, how could this be? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, people are, we're not so isolated. I mean, there is isolation factors, but, but there is like, it's this sense that, um, you know, hip hop, we do have forms of mass media. Hip hop, it does, you know, circulate, um, and, and also is, is compelling for people to either, you know, like and enjoy to listen to, but also to create and, and to start to make it. And I think this is why we see, of course, hip-hop too, you know, an engagement with hip-hop all over the world. It's, you know, also tied to a, a kind of 
well, here it is. There's a mimicry of what we hear, but then there's a way and people are so creative and find ways to um, make it about their particular kind of local yeah, and bringing in that, that sort of local, the local identity cre- creating hip hop that is speaks truly to the experience of that particular place and those people and that, you know, whether it's through language or dance um, movements or, uh, you know, symbols within artwork or, uh, you know, whatever it is, it, it is a, a, a culture and there are the, the arts practices up associated with the culture of hip hop are, are, there's ways to uh, appropriate and, and adopt that are productive and exciting and innovative. And that's, that's the kind of things that we are definitely seeing, or we have seen here. Um, and so it is good. It's also good to push back when people are, you know, the suggestions of how hip-hop is read. Um, for example, hip-hop in Nunavut, it was also read and thought about to me and talked to me about in the sense of, you know, there's this very reified identity of, of what... Um, people living in the far north, you know, that are in what they, how they would appropriate or how they would take up hip hop as opposed, you know, in a very different kind of reading of what hip hop might look like in Regina and particularly, again, that stereotype of the racialization of like mapping, uh, you know, gang culture and hip hop culture. Uh, and so, you know, there's been a lot of, for, for, one of the things that I was doing a lot in, early on in the work that I did um, was pushing back against that and, you know, um, trying to trying to disrupt those narratives in the circles that I was presenting the work that I was doing and, and engaging in um, the kinds of uh, programs and projects that I was working with with young people and, and also yeah. within communities, right? So, that hip hop does not necessarily equal this stereotype, but hip hop. And then, I mean, that's when those artists and the community projects, that's where you see the richness of what hip hop is and can be. Yeah. Specifically on that wow factor that you're mentioning, I've had that experience multiple times in my life, not only on working on this project and realizing that there were scenes in places like Saskatoon, for example. Um, but even like I grew up in, I grew up in Ontario. Um, I kind of lived all over in Ontario, but I, I grew up kind of close to the larger city and I grew up in Ontario nevertheless, right? So I had this idea about what the country was like, um, based off of a young kid's perspective in Ontario. And I ended up moving Moving out to the the Maritimes um, in my last year of high school, I think I was 16 or, or 17, um, and I moved out to Glace Bay, Nova Scotia. It's this, uh, it's in Cape Breton Island, this kind of small off island on the outskirts of Nova Scotia, and um, it was it was very very different to me. But when I first moved out here, I guess prior to moving out here, um, but knowing that I was going to and I was going to end up making the trip, and that's where we we're going to settle down as a family. Um, I I had a totally different perception of what Nova Scotia was going to be like um, compared to what it actually was when I got here. Um, even the thought of there being a university in Nova Scotia seemed foreign to me. I had this idea of it was going to be these houses on cliffs um, and it was going to be very village-like and everyone was going to be a fisherman and it was going to be this kind of remote, um, this remote kind of weird landscape that is new to me and very, very different than what I saw going on in Ontario. Um, getting here, that's, that's 
that's not the case at all. It, in fact, in some of the smaller towns that I lived in Ontario, it's very, very similar, and there's not much differences at all. Um, and I, I feel like a lot of people kind of have that experience coming through. Um, we have the house here. We have a weekly board game night, and we have a lot of Mormon missionaries that come through, and they come from all over the world, and their view of Nova Scotia is usually kind of on par with what mine was prior to coming here as well. Um, I guess that to, to say is what, um, to kind of to relate it back to what you were saying, the um, when it comes to hip hop culture, I feel like most people end up um, thinking of it as very kind of concrete landscapes, very urban, and that's where it, it takes place, right? You think of things like graffiti, um, you think of um, putting down your cardboard on a cement p- uh, road or pavement um, so you can break dance. Like it, it's very urban in terms of setting, um, and it's very kind of industrial in terms of setting as well. Um, Places like Saskatoon, where I think most people's perception of the prairies in general end up being kind of this farmland, or definitely when you look up in like Nunavut, for example, as you're mentioning, I think most people's, at least Canadians' perception of of what it's like up there is just mostly snow and ice. Um, so how is how is hip hop going to translate into those environments? And yeah, you see it translate pretty well. Um, I think what Chaps and a few other people, I think Chadio was involved in that project as well, but they recently put out the um, it was the Saskatoon folk rap records. Um, I, I think that's what it's called. I, I could be mistaken, but they've over the last year or two, they've released a, a number of um, a, a number of like 12 inches and just rap records in general that kind of speak to this prairie rap and um, this kind of unique subgenre that they've crafted for themselves based off of their own experience in the prairies. Um, exactly like you're saying, I think it's fascinating just to be able to see how hip hop as an art form, as a culture has been able to be translated into different environments. And then you're able to read what those translations are as kind of a way to, to understand better the culture that they live at their own region or their own locale. Um, it's a, it's a really, really interesting kind of field of work. Um, and yeah, I think this book kind of goes into that a lot. Um, so yeah, there's a variety of subjects, I guess, covered within the book. So from like Toronto's dance culture, uh, to Canadian hip hop's rep- uh, representation in archives. I think we spoke of that a little bit prior to the, uh, the podcast actually starting to, to your work, both in indigenous kind of the, the indigenous role in hip hop and the, the role women have played in our hip hop scene as well. I want to kind of start with that indigenous, uh, question first, mainly because one, I, we were kind of just talking about it. So it's a, a nice segue, but it's also the first chapter of yours that I had read within this book. Um, so again, for those listening at home, um, you have a chapter in the book called Celebration, Resistance and Action, Beat Nation, Hip Hop as Indigenous Culture. And one of the, the core themes here is that traditional indigenous modes of expression kind of work well within the confines of hip hop expression, that these two worlds do not need to be separated. And when looking at indigenous hip hop, we can see a blend of these styles. And again, kind of bringing us into that translation um, kind of idea. When were you first really made aware of not not just indigenous hip hop in in um in Saskatchewan, because I, I think you kind of noted that, but specifically that there was there was kind of that translation effect at play when it came to um, mixing those two styles of expression, indigenous kind of traditional indigenous um, style and in hip hop style and those blending at play. When were you first made aware of that and how? 
Um, hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. I would say that prior, let's, let me think that through here. I would say when I came to, um, when I moved to Saskatchewan, when I think it's really important to note straight up that settler colonialism and indigenous relations and how um, those things play out look very differently all in different parts of the country. And I sure. think, um, although like the impacts and the effects and all of those things, there's certainly shared experiences. I think it looks very different. So coming from Toronto, what settler colonialism and, and uh, like indigenous settler relations look like here was very different um, and very important to, uh, to me and how I came and, and rethought my own, uh, you know, relationship to, to, uh, you know, to Canada, to the lands on which I live, to and my participation and and my accountability as as a as a white settler, yeah. um, and that you know and and per, perhaps you had that experience too, moving from Ontario, moving to a smaller uh, you know center in in Nova Scotia, and of course, and I think it's really it does look very different wherever you are, and uh, I think that was. That's also very key because when I came to Regina, you know, you start to see, um, for me, I started to see that within all kinds of cultural uh, practices and forms um, where there was a lot of mixing uh, of different practices, whether it was, uh, you know, indigenous and hip hop practices that we understand, quote unquote, like traditional kinds of practices but I would which of course I think now you know uh, how we understand um, uh, how things become indigenized or uh, you know how we understand how forms mix cultural practices all of these kinds of things are so uh, you know we have certainly uh, I think moved down a path where we can think about that in a more nuanced and rich way um, than just like two different practices coming together, and, and, and but it's so much more rich and, and layered, and um, we see this actually all over the world, especially with hip hop. I think there's lots of possibilities there. Um, but what I saw right away was like you know um, the bringing together of, of hip hop, for example, people rapping uh, in in indigenous languages. For example, and sure. and that I think is really, um, you know, important to around, especially around the reclamation of language, uh, languages that were stamped out or lost because of residential schools, because of colonization, all kinds of practices. But also, I would say that one of the things that I think was so beautiful, it was a really nice moment. It's a moment I've written about, but uh, where I did, where uh, I was in uh, Nunavut. Uh, I was there um, for the Alien Night Festival that happens in Kilimanjaro. I went to um, flew to Pangerton and uh, was engaged in conversations with young people from that community and talking about hip hop for them, what it what it was for them, and they uh, and two young women 
um, that went by their names were Big Girl Annie and Big Girl Snap at that time. There were young, young women there, and they, um, you know, this was 2007, maybe? It was quite early on uh, for, for me in, in my practice, uh, on hip-hop, my research class on hip-hop, and uh, where they stood together, and I initially thought they were going to... Um, they asked to perform something uh, for me, and, and I was very excited, and I assumed they were going to get up and rap or dance. Or, but what ended up happening was the two of them uh, stood together facing each other, and one began to uh, throat sing, and the other one began to beatbox. And so it was in that moment where I, they started talking about throat boxing. And these were very young girls, and of course, this is something that has happened uh, after that, I mean, we started to see it happening with artists doing this, and you know, you think about all kinds of really interesting uh, work that has been done around the the art form. I'm, I'm thinking about the incredible work of uh, Tani Kayak and just how um, you know throat singing, how it it has uh, um, evolved in various different ways and different forms. But it was a really important, lovely moment uh, for me, for, for them to present this to me and uh, in a way that I, it um, challenged me and made me think about the, the sort of creativity and engagement of these very young people um, and thinking about their uh, how they were taking up hip-hop in a way that for them, and that moment made sense to them. And it was a really beautiful, lovely moment. Um, and I just remember they were so excited to do it, but also very shy. And but it was just, it was a, it was a lovely um, one of those moments in my in my research career in in, in my life that was just such a lovely um, moment of sharing and sharing something so beautiful and so simple and yet so uh, rich and taking on um, for for them what, how they were enjoying hip-hop in that moment. So I would say th- those things happen quite often, like those kinds of moments happen quite often. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what, how, how we understand expression and, and how we see it and the engagement of it is... Um, and seeing kinds of new cultural uh, forms being created are, you know, obviously those I think are moments of, of intense uh, excitement, innovation, joy, and and certainly I've been very privileged to to uh, have a number of those moments happen in my in my life. Thinking about hip hop in particular. Yeah, the throat uh, the throat singing thing is is particularly. Um kind of beautiful but it's it's so unique I, I first became aware of the i guess practice and the art forum by a colleague of mine that showed me some mongolian um throat singing um i guess band like a large it seemed almost like a, a 20 piece band type thing um and it was so unique and creative um to see kind of hip-hop being used in in these i guess various different different ways um is 
is fascinating. And I think a lot of people don't really end up seeing that because they're they're so used to being what's played on the, the radio or just kind of what their their preconceived notion of what hip hop is, that they're not really used to, to seeing hip hop practiced in new and creative ways, um, which is, is kind of weird because hip hop is a very kind of regional and very geographic thing, right? So we think of New York hip hop being very distinct and separate from Atlanta hip hop or from LA hip hop. Bay Area hip hop having a very unique sound to it. Um, but I feel like people don't really prescribe cultural differences um, to to that same sort of um, reality, right? They they see it in, in terms of geographics, uh, like geography, and that there's going to be different sounds correlating with different areas, but not necessarily because of cultural reasons. Um, and I think that becomes a lot more evident when you, you look at specific cultural groups like indigenous populations within Nunavut or in Regina or what have you, and see how they articulate that hip-hop expression and just see it play out so differently from what else is around them. Um, I think that's that's amazingly cool and just interesting. Um, and I think it's it's something worthy of exploration. Um, I think the the more you kind of dig into kind of local hip hop, um, the more interesting those kind of pockets become. Um, I I haven't experienced that that none of a kind of throat singing hip hop that you're referring to. Um, but even just hearing you describe it makes makes me want to take the time out to, to go and kind of dive into that whole new realm of, of music and, and art. Um, but no, I, I totally see what you're saying. I think it's amazing. I, I also think, you know, one of the things it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Because yes, there's like a, a particular sound that is attached, a hip hop sound or a, a, an aesthetics something that's attached to often certain regions. And I think that's one of the things that's really been important to over the last decade uh, for me or 15 years is to really think about and, and um, articulate, you know, uh, I don't, I don't talk about indigenous hip hop, but, but hip hop through an indigenous lens or even how they beat nation, right? That hip hop as indigenous culture and yeah. just the diversity and, um, you know, creative differences across uh, indigenous communities. And um, so when we talk about, you know, hip hop and, and sort of these, how it's, uh, I'm drawing on your, your word there, translated within various different communities. It's, it's so often so different and so unique and so much a part of that particular local, um, uh, whether it's the vernacular, whether it's, you know, yeah. the artwork, whether the aesthetic, yep. the, uh, the fashion, whatever it is. And I think that was one of the really, um, important pieces that I loved about Beat Nation. And so, of course, Beat Nation was a, a, a project. Um, Tanya Willard and, and Stina Reese, they were the uh, co-curators. I mean, it's talked about in the book at, at length. As I really quote a lot from Tanya um, because her words are so, I think, uh, important to understanding that um, that larger project. But um, within that, it, it really, there were representatives from a lot of different places. Um, and I think that was really um, exciting and showed uh, the, the variety of innovation and engagement and difference 
all over. And uh, that was one of, for me, when I came upon that um, online exhibition, I found it so uh, compelling um, in a variety of different ways and, uh, and demonstrative of what people can do with hip hop. So I really, it, it was to me, it's still up. It, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a project that, that happened a long time ago, but it, it, it's, it's still there on the online exhibition is still there. And it's, um, there's so much, you know, material and, really great artwork across uh, the disciplines there as well. Yeah, there's, uh, I have the book here in front of me and there's a number of, of parts in, uh, I guess, in the entirety of the text that I've highlighted, but I did highlight one specific quote from, from Tanya that I think kind of speaks to this issue. Um, she says, um, I was really wary that people were going to see it and be like, quote, um, oh, you know, Native kids doing new things. It's all about new, new, new. But it's not about that. It's about seeing this continuum of their culture and incorporating a holistic idea of who they are as Indigenous person, um, as an Indigenous person that doesn't have to be divorced from Indigenous contemporary realities. Um, I think that's a kind of a, a beautiful quote. And you're right. Uh, you do end up quoting her a lot in this chapter. But I think they're... Uh, I think they're appropriate quotes at, at the at the very least, and um, yeah, she's. Uh, I have never spoken to Tanya, um, and again, for those listening at home, it's Tanya Willard. Uh, Willard, but um, I've never spoken to her, but she's um, seems to be very um, a very good speaker at the very least, and the ideas that she presents within this chapter alone are um, are quite thought provoking. Tanya is a is a brilliant artist, uh, and this uh, piece, I mean, this is just another one of the uh, elements that she is very um, uh, strong at in this curation. So she's an artist in her own right, and then curates, which of course is another kind of art form, and yeah. to curate online. This was early on, so these online exhibitions, it was fairly new. I think uh, Canada Heritage, it was uh, funded through that program, um, which is no longer, but uh, was indeed a way to think about also connecting people all over the world or and, and exhibiting in a way at a time where it didn't necessarily make sense to be thinking about, for example, uh, an exhibition on hip hop. Yeah. In in a formal gallery. Yes, of course, it happened and it can happen. And there's lots of work that's been done, I think, by galleries, some galleries to revitalize. But I need to connect to an entire generation of people that, um, you know, visiting galleries in the, the sort of those kind of conventional ways, that would not be the thing. And so to, you know, take this these works and all of the different platforms, right? So it's certainly music, but it's fashion and it's um, dance performances and uh, poetry and it's beats and it's all of these, um, these different elements and putting them onto a platform that is accessible um, all around the world. And probably, perhaps I would argue, um, more innovative in a way of like attracting young people to an exhibit um, was really key at that time. Um, And as I said, yes, we've, I think we've 
there's been a lot of critic critique of the, what that means and how to think about that now and some work being done on you know what it means like how to make uh, galleries and and um, centers where these uh, kinds of exhibitions can happen uh, more uh, accessible in ways that are maybe would get in more generations because of course we saw the decline right we a decline in who is, and not a very diverse group of people maybe going uh, to galleries in the same way. And so how can we, how can we address that? And this, I think this project did a, a really great job of that. And it also was able to capture um, the, the beauty of what hip hop was through this indigenous lens. You, uh, you mentioned that you don't use the term indigenous hip hop there, and I, I, I think that that's interesting um, in of itself. But there's this connection between activism and indigenous hip hop that I want to kind of touch on. And I feel that there's often this notion that the, the term kind of indigenous hip hop um, implies that artists must be political in order to kind of honor their heritage or their culture. And there's this political notion kind of tied to it and that by using indigenous hip-hop as a label we are implying kind of a sort of activism onto it um i'm not sure personally how to feel about that as i guess we wouldn't necessarily say like african-american hip-hop must be in its nature political even though there are political african-american artists um perhaps it's because it's it's not and we are aware as a society that it's not because we're inundated with different forms of of african-american hip-hop music um but there's I, I think that there's a difference there, at least in terms of what people end up um, kind of thinking of when they hear the term indigenous hip hop and what that's going to end up meaning and what that's going to sound like and what the content of that music is going to end up sounding or going to end up being. Um, how do you end up feeling about this? Do you do you see that indigenous hip hop artists um, kind of have an obligation to, to speak on these issues? Um do you think there's a space for indigenous hip hop outside of the political sphere? I know I keep using the term indigenous hip hop, but um, I, I think it's important for, for this context at the very least. I, I think one of the things I need to say is I'm not going to speak for artists, for hip hop artists. Sure. Um, and I think that that's really key. I, I'm also, you know, as a, a, as a settler, as a, someone who's white, um, yeah. I need to be very conscientious of my relationship, uh, of, of who, who I am in this place, and also as a researcher. And this is something really, I think, I, I've been doing this research since 2004, but at that time there were not, like I think maybe there had been one or two articles in total. Uh, published around hip hop, and uh, one was I think on maybe on Bannock uh, in Edmonton. There was a and, and another one maybe coming out of Quebec. I can't. So so um, and we know that part of that like there's a lot of systemic issues uh, around who is in universities and what colonization has you know been. Uh, responsible for. And so I think one of the things I'm really excited about is that over the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a real um, rise of number of folks that are engaged in, in this research, like senior scholars, uh, and I think, and, and, and excited by it and engaged. And I'm really um, thrilled uh, to have participated early on. And I'm, I'm also really excited that um, you know, for me, in that sense, like I, I 
know that I step back and and allow and not allow. I just step back at that at this point, and and that's really exciting. Um, but that being said, so coming back to this very specific question, I would say um, in uh, hip hop, a lot of artists that I have spoken to, you know, want to be understood and recognized um, for and celebrated for their hip hop. Like they are hip hop artists first and foremost. Um, and so, and what that means, and we've heard this not just around how people um, categorize or distinguish, but certainly we've heard this in other areas, especially like the gendering, you know, I'm a female. And the femme Rather than thing, I'm yeah. just an MC. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, you know, this is a very problematic way of, of thinking about um, and talking about artists and their work because it becomes, um, but it, it, it's like a double-edged sword because one, it's really important to have role models that are um, from marginalized groups, right? That makes total sense. We need more women MCs. We need more women uh, dancers, people who do like uh, B-girls. We need to see that more because of the exclusion, because of um, the the historical uh, inequality and uh, and even just gendering of public and private space, of all of those things, the gendering of hip-hop that still happens, like that heavily masculinized identity that is mapped on to hip-hop, of course we need to see that broken up. And we need to see yeah. people, a diversity within hip-hop. Um, do, but I think it's also really important to value the, the contributions, the music, the, the artwork of these artists um, as, as hip-hop artists. You know, too. And I, and I, it's often, um, you know, it's interesting because, of course, then it's often those folks that have already been marginalized that end up having to carry the burden of doing all of the labor around social justice. And, right, and this is, uh, I've talked about this even in my work in Girls Rock, Regina, for example, like in the Girls Rock scene and how it is that, um, like, I'm, how it is that, you know, the expectation, the people doing the labor around social justice and around that work um, to combat exclusionary practices in local music scenes, not just hip-hop, and many local music scenes, like diversifying uh, who's on stage, who's in lineups, who's, who's asked, um, engaging and thinking about the, the the problems or the automatic assumptions when you, um, you know, you're in, you're talking to a band and everyone goes, you know, the tech folks go to the, the, the men in the band, as opposed to the a woman who is actually a her band. You know, like, yeah. these are just the kinds of things that happen over and over and over again uh, across. And these are the kinds of things that need to be uh, combated and, worked against and people again we constantly need to do that education and you know uh, but that work tends to still happen by the folks that are um, are, are on the are marginalized are the, those are the ones that end up doing that labor and um, that's a problem right and this is the same yeah. thing when we look at things like Black Lives Matter we look at 
um, what kinds of practices are happening in reconciliation. Uh, you know, like who who is doing the hard labor, um, and who needs to be right, and who should be doing that. Yeah. Work? Um, whether it's you know your the accomplice or the ally, how you know wh- who who should be? It's the people that are privileged that need to be doing that work. That and and much more of that labor. And so I think, you know, there's, there's, there's been um, a push around that, certainly in the last, you know, six to eight months around, uh, you know, who, how do you do the work if you uh, are privileged and how can you actually help make sustainable and real change that has a positive impact? And how can you do that work in a way that is ethical and true and all of these kinds of things? So I would say when we talk about hip hop, I think hip hop artists have the, um, are, are, you know, they can make whatever kind of hip hop they want. I think one doesn't just because you're a hip hop artist, we've seen this, we know this, it doesn't necessarily mean you're political, it doesn't necessarily mean you're progressive. And this is one of the ongoing issues we see within that genre, like that hyper masculinity, the over sexualization of women, uh, the homophobia. Uh, you know, we, we continue to see that. Um, and we continue to see uh, a kind of glorification of capitalism. Uh, you know, like we we see these narratives that are quite um, typical and stereotypical and boring and and you know just <laughs> awful. Um, but we, we you know, and I think that's one of the things in working on hip hop that sometimes can become very tiring. I've had to answer that question a lot in. Um, in talking about the research, especially when I've been working with youth and young people and why why are we drawing on hip hop like there's all these things or or even seeing how, you know, as I think I mentioned this earlier, how those narratives can play out where just because it's hip hop then all of a sudden it becomes mediated through a lens of gang culture, for example. And that ha- happens often, especially around indigenous youth, especially around young men. Yeah, in, in, in the city, for example, and so we need to. Those those are things that, like, we have to be very conscientious of and and think about. And so I think that, yeah, it's a bit of a. It's that's one of those hard things because you have someone. I'm coming back to this. I'm going this roundabout way. Coming back to this question, when you have an artist like Paul, who is and proud of her um, in, indigeneity uh, and her mixed ancestry, and yet, and and wraps in, in her language, uh, uh, you know, in, in, a, in Cree, to some extent, is trying to reclaim that, and yet at the same time, is an incredible uh, MC who raps fast and hard, and it's, 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 she is so talented. She is a talented hip-hop artist. Um, and so I think, you know, there's, there's something to be said for that, but also she acknowledges and recognizes that, um, you know, that this is, you know, one of the issues that comes up for her, um, you know, to, to think and that she has to respond to and think about a lot. Um, and I've asked those questions too of her, 
And so, you know, like in that sense, like, what does it mean? And how do you understand in your place, especially as a woman rapper um, uh, that raps progressive kinds of raps, uh, yeah. social justice and then thinking about and and even asking this about um that beautiful project that she and uh, t rhyme just did around uh by women for women which is around the supporting of uh other women within the the hip-hop scene and and role modeling and and you know encouraging and all of those kinds of things such an important uh yeah, there's a, there's a number of things there. Thank you for the insight in terms of the burdening um, kind of aspect. I, I never I never thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. This idea that we're almost prescribed uh, prescribing an obligation towards minority groups and people that are actually undergoing the the oppression in order to actually do something about it and to to speak up and to to be activists. Uh, but that burden probably shouldn't be on them. Um, and I I've always understood that that. I guess the, let's say, white people or the oppressors um, or the historical oppressors um, do need to do more than what they're currently doing, 100%. Um, but there most certainly is a, an obligation societal, uh, societally um, in order for the oppressed to, to be kind of activists and to speak up. Um, you, you hear this all the time, even in terms of um, kind of public celebrities and the... Um, depending on the category, uh, the categories that they're kind of placed in, um, you often end up hearing kind of backlash because they're not speaking out on specific issues that they should be based off of their background. Um, but yeah, you're you're absolutely right about that burdening idea, and I, I, I never quite thought of it in in those terms or articulated it in that way. So so thank you. Um, there, okay, so. There's a few different chapters that you ended up kind of contributing to, and I want to end up moving on to, to something else here. But you wrote a chapter, the last chapter in the collection, actually, on uh, on a particular conference that took place within the, the Rain City Rap Festival in Vancouver a number of years back. And I, I feel like that's probably been, I think, touched on now a couple times within this conversation. But um, the, the conference title was, was Clear Lines, Powerful and Fierce Women in Hip Hop. And it featured a number of female hip-hop practitioners that contributed in some way to the conversation of, of women in hip-hop. Um, from one of the photos included in the chapter, I, I thought I saw your, yourself in that kind of photo, meaning that you were in the panel as well. Can you tell those listening how this panel came together and what your role or what role you had to play in the, the conference or in the, the specific uh, panel was? Yes, so um, the, I had been, two years prior to that, I had been uh, invited by Elaine Carroll, who is part of Miscellaneous Productions, uh, the artistic director and organizer of this event. So uh, the first one was um, Rain City Rap, and it was a history of uh, rap and hip-hop in Vancouver, specifically. Um, and, and so that was really exciting. I came and I... Um, I moderated a couple of panels for that one, you know, all of like very uh, sort of important big figures in hip hop um, there having discussions that were specifically from that region. Yep. And, uh, and then, and I gave a, a talk on how we might think about um, archiving and, and histories of hip hop 
across because of the diversity and also the nature of them. And, um, and also, you know, what ended up you know, happening after that was that I ended up meeting Mark um, at a different conference uh, in, in actually on the East Coast. Um, in Nova Scotia, Mark and I met uh, Marie uh, Foreman, connected us, and, you know, learned all about uh, Northside Hip Hop, which I think is uh, the digital archiving of uh, a culture's, like, of hip hop makes so much more sense. And I think that work is uh, brilliant and really important work. And, you know, I'm, I'm uh, quite uh, a strong uh, supporter of Mark's work and, and, and all that goes into that archive. And his um, engagement, over the, especially over the last few years, to, to diversify that so it's not so focused on Toronto, which was the initial, um, but really branching out and, and trying to archive and think about hip-hop histories all over the country. And I think that's key and and exciting. Um, so that was, uh, I believe, that was in 2011, maybe. And then uh, it was a biannual event at that time. It became a for for one session. And Elaine invited me, asked me if I would like to participate again a little bit differently in the second one. So it was in 2013. And one, it was to do two public interviews: one with Chin and Jetty, uh, and one with Alita Kingstar. And then the other was to moderate um, this panel uh, of of women uh, hip hop participants, and they all have different roles. They are all are um, well. I suppose there were two rappers on there, but the way they participate in the in hip hop was very different, and uh, it was very exciting and a. I really got to, you know, begin by throwing out and asking on this question that I had sent before, and it was really around thinking about the work, the labor, the work, and how we think about hip-hop, especially as women participating in a culture that is still bound within so many of those other issues I talked about, right? Like, what does it mean to be doing and making um, hip-hop and working against still a very particular kind of status quo? And some very problematic things like the sexism, the the hypermasculinity, the homophobia, the you know um, capitalization sort of the seductiveness of that sort of slick uh, celebrity kind of culture, and uh, and so that was uh, in the initial question I put out to them, and then we just got to go around and have these uh, this incredibly rich conversation uh, with. And, and it was a conversation that, although from 2013, um, is still incredibly relevant today, <laughs> which on one hand is, you know, exciting because the book just came out and so people are engaged in this reading, this, this lovely, this, this important uh, conversation that happened. And yet at the same time, um, you know, uh, disheartening that it's yeah, so, so relevant, right? Um, and and so that's how it, it came came about. It was really um, to have all of those diverse voices coming from uh, you know whether it was you know JB the First Lady, so rapping, contributing in so many ways within community work, um, uh, to to having Kim and he had the dancing and uh, someone coming out of the dance, hip hop dance. Seen in variety of different 
both local and sort of more national, international. Uh, he had a, like rapping for such beautiful uh, reflection. Um, Andrea, who had as a journalist and writer, writing about this and engaging and thinking about hip hop in all kinds of ways. And Tara, like this incredible pioneer DJ. Um, they all had very unique perspectives, and yet there were lots of common themes and, and shared experience um, that we were able to think about. And one of the things that I thought was so exciting, uh, and when I, I go through this this work um, again, when I read this chapter, I'm very proud of this, this particular piece be, because of that innovation and the strategies within which they all talked about. And they all talked about very different kinds of strategies, how they managed or negotiated or shut down the kinds of um, you know, sexism or um, exclusionary practices that they were facing with such creativity and um, finesse. You know, they were just like these awesome, uh, uh, beautiful moments where I was, you know, you're just blown away and you're just like, oh, that's such a, such a, a, a thoughtful and smart and savvy uh, way to, to deal with some of this. And I think so for me, it, it was also um, indicative of the innovativeness of these people and how they were engaging and how they continue to contribute and, yeah. and, and give culture. Yeah, there was one strategy in particular that really stood out to me, and I, it's probably the one you're thinking of right now as well. But um, and I, I forget exactly who it was, so you can enlighten me there. But it was a journalist, anyhow. And um, what she had done is, any time that she was um, asked to do an interview or cover somebody that was um, particularly misogynistic or uh, particularly troubling um, in terms of um, their own politics and the way that they carried themselves. Themselves, um, she would f- kind of structure the interview that she was instructed to do with this person um, as not confrontational, but subject-wise, it would be entirely about that that topic, um, but almost looking at it kind of positively. So uh, there was an example given where she was asked to interview this person, this rapper that was very kind of misogynistic. And as he came through town, she phrased the interview in terms of um, how did you think about your, your like, what do you think about your mother, for example, or like, what are, who are your favorite woman role models and asking these um, kind of questions that completely turn the, the table on the individual to kind of address some of his own um, misogynistic views or his own views on women and maybe give the, the listener maybe a different kind of lens of who that uh, who that person really is, and maybe allow the artist also to kind of reflect on a lot of those kind of ideas. I I also thought that that was really savvy and uh, really interesting. Uh, I do a lot of interviews myself, and I don't think I would be that uh, that confident in order to carry through with something like that. Um, I think I'd be a, a nervous wreck hopping into an interview, knowing that that's what I was going to do. Um, but I think it was extremely powerful, and I'd love to be able to see some of her uh, some of her work in action and. Uh, and, and actually see that happen because I, I think it's I think it was super creative and um, very daring and uh, very kind of courageous and I don't know just an awesome way of, of handling that issue. Um, so yeah, I just I, yeah, I don't know. That, was, that, that stood was out to Andrea. me. 
Okay. Yeah, that was Andrea Warner, and uh, Andrea's brilliant. She's you know written a, a, a number of books and uh, specifically around popular music and and women. Um, she's just authored the um, Buffy Saint Marie, the authorized biography, uh, just came out uh, uh, last year. Anyway, she's um, she's incredible and and smart and savvy and. Uh, I know I was very compelled by that and compelled by others, uh, you know, the way they just took it up and was like, no, <laughs> like Tara, yeah. I think in some, no, that's not going to work. This is how it's going to work. And just, you know, uh, just shut it down in a way that, you know, made it like this. No, we're not playing. I'm not playing the game this way. We're moving on to this and this is how it's going to be. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> I loved it. Uh, I thought it was great, and thank yeah, you for just, including that little bit in the in the chapter as well, because um, it added, uh, I don't know, it just it made the chapter more enjoyable and uh, more interesting, thought-provoking. Yeah, I think that, um, uh, you know, the, how these women are contributing um, and the ways that they contribute and the way that they in, end up um, impacting and many of the one, many of the, the participants on this panel right are engaged in community work teaching youth young people and if that's the kind of role modeling that's happening at that moment in those sort of developmental stages you know that's important for creating change yeah I agree. And I think that that's, I think, you know, it, even, for example, one of the hip hop projects. And so I had mentioned Scott Collegiate at the high school that I ended up doing this lovely hip hop project for six years, I think it was, where we created a curriculum of, you know, uh, where young people, grade 10s, they could get, they came to the university, to the imp labs. Uh, we did this back and forth and they learned the hip hop elements. And um, part of that, through that, they were able to get English credits. They were able to get um, arts education credits, health credits. And part of the issue there was this, it was grade 10 and the students moved through uh, up to grade 10. And then once they hit grade 10, they had to pass. So you were moved through, didn't matter where you were at, but once it got they got to grade 10, they had to actually, they had to pass. And what was happening is they found at this particular high school during this moment was at in, in time, not now, I don't know what's happening now specifically, but what we were seeing, what they were seeing was a lot of, um, in particular, young men falling off and not completing. Um, and so one of the reasons that I was approached was to, you know, can we come up and do this, do a project where they can get these credits through the hip hop, through hip hop elements. And and so we did. We worked very hard, created a kind of curriculum, developed this project, and um, and we saw success. But one of the things that I did um, to mitigate uh, this kind of hyper masculinity and the sort of notoriety <laughs> of hip hop and the sort of gendered, the sexist problems that the were, you know, are very much part of the mainstream culture of the culture and, and represented in media, et cetera, is that uh, I hired for my implant assistants, my research assistants, the team was all women. And they were all women that, it was a diverse group of women that all had incredible skills. So on the technology. Um, and so what 
I found was there was a real um, deconstruction or a real disruption of this idea that uh, the sort of um, one, the gendering of technologies as being, you know, very, uh, you know, male oriented around expertise, but also these young people having to, to, to talk, especially these young men, having to um, be mentored and engage with these uh, uh, savvy, talented women um, around issues of hip hop and creating their raps and creating their beats and creating their DJ sets and learning how to dance and, and thinking about hip hop um, in, in that way with these, these very strong um, women mentors. And I think that was a really important uh, choice uh, and, and forward thinking. I don't know, you know, one of those strategies that for me was key um, in sort of breaking down a lot of those stereotypes, especially for these young men that were in grade 10, um, that were really, you know, caught up in that sort of seductive, like hip hop uh, style that was so mainstream and so like, particular and and it it challenged them and they worked through a lot of really interesting things you know we couldn't we really challenged any kind of notion of like lyrics that were gendered and sexist or how representations of of particular kinds of beats or sounds or and and it worked and we saw uh, on that level there was a real um movement there and a recognition and a kind of respect that was so uh, generated and, and earned and so um, there was such a reciprocity there and that was a really lovely, another one of those lovely moments uh, that, that I have been privileged to, to be part of and, and see. Yeah. yeah. One of the one of the themes that kept popping up within the conversation of the panel, at the very least, and within the the confines of the the chapter, um, was that of kind of commercial hip hop and mainstream hip hop, and the separation between quote unquote authentic hip hop culture and what is being played on the radio, shown in MTV music videos, presented in kind of hip hop advertising, etc. Um, Kia Kadiri, one of the the women in the panel and a fantastic hip hop artist, uh, one of my favorites from Vancouver. Um, actually, I think she's from Victoria originally, but um, she noted yeah. that uh, yeah, she noted that she refuses to listen to mainstream rap and and has a hard time justifying her kind of hip hop identity. I think in, in kind of part due to this. Um, can you elaborate on on this theme and I guess why it was chosen as something I guess so crucial to your own reflection of the of the conference and of the panel that you attended and I guess moderated. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things too, and I, I mentioned this before, is like that problem of thinking about commercial as bad and underground as good or progressive, because of course we see some of the most misogynist, awful. Uh, problematic hip hop in, in underground as well, right? So it's, I think, and certainly in mainstream, we've seen some brilliant uh, feminist, you know, just activist kinds of hip hop as well. So it's really important, I think, not to get caught up in the binary, but I, it is important because I think what was the experience of these people, and I would argue my experience as well, is what you do get to hear on commercial radio is so the it's it's very much um, the same, right? It's the same, not very. And so when there is that mainstream, an artist that breaks through that, where there is something different about it, I mean, people are wowed and excited. Um, 
but at the at the same time, um, I think for these this group, there there was a real struggle too around like what does it take to become commercial? Like what kind of hoops and where are they willing to draw a line? And I think he was really like he was really important with that um, in in thinking about even uh, you know like I I didn't want to listen to that because it also wasn't for her. That, that idea that there was an inauthenticity, that wasn't her lived experience. So why would she take on some of that, um, you know, some of those symbols and, and ideas that are connected to hip hop specifically um, and, and to do that? And I, I really appreciated that. I appreciated that sense of like honesty around, I didn't want to become uh, you know, something that I wasn't because that wasn't my experience. And I think her experience, her racialized experience was very different. And I, I really appreciated how she talked about that in Victoria, like that idea of like, well, there, there wasn't even an, you know, like when you're only one, like there, there isn't a shared, so you can't engage in these kinds of experiences. It's a little bit different how you experience racism um, and, and, and racial difference and, um, you know, and then the same Tara talked a little bit about that as well, coming from PI, right? And yeah. and so being one, like the kinds of racism that you experience are um, a little bit are are different. And I thought yeah. it was really um, lovely how they also both enrich how they they um, both are were worked to articulate what that meant to each of them. Um, and then of yeah. course, Tara, right. To also talking about being queer and then, you know, like, and so the, these, there's a sense of that. And so I think it really did come up because I think a lot too is like, who do you see in the commercial? How can one, um, within commercial rap and hip hop, who do you, who, who's represented there? Does one see themselves there? Often not. And, um, and then so whether it's quote unquote authentic rap or authentic hip hop or ways of participating in being um, that seem to be more connected to one's experience. I think that they, um, a number of the artists on the panel did a really good job of uh, trying to get at those, those complex uh, uh, and nuanced differences and, and experiences and trying to articulate uh, what they mean and how how it happens, um, and so yeah, again coming back to that and, and them recognizing that of course like there's some really great you know uh, some really great artists that are successful commercially, but at the same yeah. time it wasn't their experience to see a lot of that. I I found um, it because, interesting. Because of, sorry, go on. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> sorry, I was just gonna say I find it interesting that. Um, that Kia had, as you said, kind of re refused to to adopt some of the symbols that were, I guess, not her, right? So outside of her own personality and how she would normally act, she refused to change the way she was in order to adopt kind of hip-hop uh, verbiage, cadence, the way she carried herself, etc. Um, what I find interesting is that, for the most part, um, and I, I maybe took uh, totally, but she has remained 
authentic to hip hop, right? I, I she's from Victoria, um, but from British Columbia and the kind of Vancouver kind of hip hop scene, anyhow. And I've I've interviewed over a hundred people within that scene in Vancouver and Victoria, and um, I can't count the number of times that her name has come up in conversation and the accolades, the praise, the respect that Kia ends up getting within the community, um, despite her not having to change who she is and not having to kind of conform to the standards of hip hop. Um, I, I find that fascinating that she's still been able to adhere that much respect and is still clearly considered authentic when it comes to her own expression of hip hop culture. Um, she's a, she's an incredibly talented individual, but I think the, the acceptance there to some degree speaks to something. Um, I'm not saying hip hop is completely accepting because I, I know it's not. And even within these localized cultures, I, I've heard stories about how it's, it's the opposite of that, but it's interesting that Kia has been able to, um, to create, um, to create art within this sphere and still be respected despite not changing who she is, um, in ways that are, are very confrontational to how hip hop is supposed to be, quote unquote, supposed to be. I, I would, yes. Like the one thing I would say is she is super talented. She's also incredibly, um, generous in how she's given and, back to the community, how she does workshops and um, programs and teaching and how she supports others. Um, Like, and this is also one of the things that I was hoping and trying to get at in that last chapter is the kinds of uh, generosity and labor that are put into hip hop um, at this grassroots level and that kind of work that is done by so many women artists is, um, something that needs to be recognized, acknowledged, celebrated, and really taken into account when we're talking about hip hop, hip hop histories, how hip hop continues to move and circulate, um, the kinds of innovation that's happening with hip hop. We that that's the labor that needs to be, you know, recognized and acknowledged and so often is not in these yeah. larger conversations within the discourses, within how uh hip hop histories are um, articulated and, and um, published and, and mediated. And um, I think, you know, that's one thing we, we did attempt. And I think it's also one of the reasons when Mark and I, with this book, we really did initially have a number of other very like interviews with artists. And it was something we were both very um, uh, committed to. And, and that was like, you know, a negotiation with the press around how the shape of the book and these are things that, you know, we, we, um, like, I mean, this is a particular kind of book. It, it has to fit in some of the frames. Um, and so we were able to keep the interview with you daily, um, in, in the book. Um, and then we reference a lot of the other interviews, um, and that those interviews are actually, um, housed on 
uh, North Side Hip Hop, so on yeah. the archive, yeah, in the archive. So uh, that you know, we we can reference them, and we did in, the, sure. in throughout it, in different places. Um, and it's the same, you know, that that initially like that chapter with on Beat Nation, that was a, a really beautiful interview with Tanya. Um, but it, again, so it, it, when it was that, you know, you either rewrite some into chapters or you, and so that was a, a way we were able to um, keep that focus on the artists as well, the makers, right? Like those are, um, are doing the work. Uh, and it's the same, you know, that, the, the quoting in, the, in that last chapter, I'm um, bringing together the themes. It, you know, hopefully pulling these these, uh, these voices up, giving a platform to these voices, um, and the work that's being done. But I think that's something that it's missing a lot is that we don't uh, look to what's happening at that level, at the grassroots level there, because of course, you know, it's not. <laughs> And this is the problem with music industry, with with like thinking about celebrity nature of of music and music making, and um, is that that we miss out on a lot. And so to do that work and to look further, um, it's also one of the things that I teach in my in in at university in the popular music courses that I teach, whether it's hip hop or whatever it is. It's like you know, here's an assignment, and you need to go and do some do some digging get in there and listen and, uh, and, and seek out that which is not so readily available. Um, and, and, and overall students come back, you know, saying that was the best project I, I had to do. It was really hard, but it was like, wow, you know, and that's that. And, and I think as, as the general public, as listeners, um, you know, we need to be doing that work too. Uh, so whatever we can do to include um, those contributions, to recognize those contributions, and to celebrate them as as like key uh, to you know the thriving hip hop communities and scenes that are happening, um, you know that's that's what we need to be doing when we're we're you know writing about um, and and talking about hip hop. Yeah, I, I know we're all, we're well past the the original hour mark that we had said, but um, there is a couple other things that I would like to kind of go into if you have time. Sure, let's. Uh, we we should wrap it up fairly soon, but okay. yeah, for sure. Go ahead. Okay, um, I'll so yeah. Fair enough. You you bring up a quote from uh, from Trisha Rose in, in the chapter um, in the last chapter there, and although I don't have the quote here in front of me, it's it's essentially suggests that that hip hop's not dead, but it but it is indeed very ill. Um, you suggest that hip hop in Canada and in these women that attended that panel specifically kind of offer an antidote to that sickness. I've read Trisha's work, and I, I think she's an incredible scholar. But for a lot of people in the culture, I think they see your point. Um, hip hop had has had its transformations over the years, but there's still this active pocket that is not necessarily caving into the pressures of, I guess, toxic hip-hop culture. Um, we not only have the the woman in your panel, but a large chunk of the hip-hop community kind of committed to, to values of social justice and progressive values. Um, this is where I would apply, I guess, that authentic hip-hop culture label if, if I apply it anywhere. Um, do you see hip-hop getting 
better? I know that's a question that gets asked all the time, but do you see it getting better? And do you see the the occasional conscious artists like J. Cole or Kendrick Lamar or the growing acceptance of a rapper like Rhapsody, for example, kind of adding to this conversation? I would say for for sure there's um, a number of artists that are adding to the conversation and, and doing uh, making hip hop and not just on the rapping and everything, but like even in other art forms, right. That are part of, or have been part of the culture. I would say definitely um, if hip hop getting better, was that the actual question? Is hip hop getting better? Yeah. Is hip hop getting better? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. you know, as someone who's been writing a long time, sometimes, you know, you can you, you can say what hip-hop does. And I would say as someone who um, has been constantly articulating hip-hop as a place where I see and have uh, had the honor and privilege of participating with youth, where they are um, engaging in, uh, you know, hip-hop arts forms and able to, through these forms, able to articulate very complex lived experiences. Um, they are able to, uh, you know, um, find a voice uh, or a means through to communicate and engage um, politically, to engage in a kind of activism uh, that's meaningful to them and their communities. I would say on that level, uh, there's so much about hip hop that is um, uh, significant is, is real is, is important. Um, I see that there are a number of artists that I would suggest are doing such incredible, um, awesome work around decolonization, around kinds of uh, productive and, and, and ethical or um, more real kinds of reconciliation or conciliation as opposed to, you know, maybe what the lip service that we're seeing paid um, perhaps in so many other uh, venues and avenues. But I would, you know, overall, I think hip hop uh, is still very much bound up within this sort of capitalist enterprise of, uh, (laughs) and I think that there needs to be some very, um, big and uh, how like a revolt, I suppose, around the music industry and capitalism and celebrity culture and how, um, you know, these, these structures uh, maintain and perpetuate uh, a particular kind of narrative. Um, and narratives Um, and so I see certainly see and hear um, artists doing that work um, as we have in the past but I I I don't necessarily (laughs) I'm not necessarily certain that um, you know hip-hop is getting better uh, in that sort of political way but I think there are my hope is that the work that's being done in the grassroots to challenge some of those structures um, 
the labor that's being done there uh, is having an impact and an effect. And perhaps what that means is that there will be um, some larger systemic change. Um, how long it will take to see that, uh, I'm not sure. Um, but I think, again, there are those of us in positions of power and privilege um, that have a way or a voice or a means to articulate uh, yeah. some of these other more innovative and social justice-minded and um, in a, in interesting, like more interesting kinds of work and to give a platform and a voice. Um, yeah. that That's key. I also think it's up to the listeners, people who engage, that we have to do work. And I think, you know, we can... We need to um, be more savvy in how we listen, who we listen to, the work we do in order to find uh, artists that are not necessarily commercial or mainstream. Those are the kinds of things that are the kind of good work that we actually as a public can do. We can do that work. And so to acknowledge that we can do that work and then do it, that's, I think, again, another strategy another way forward yeah yeah i'm sure we could talk about this issue for for quite a while but ultimately i i i think i agree with with your sentiments um i have one last question here before i let you end up going um as i read through the text and, the, and that being the collection as a whole and specifically your contributions you make a number of statements towards i guess the the purpose of the collection as a whole and the and the work that was done by other contributors within the collection as well from the idea that that hip-hop is negatively portrayed in the media and by looking at this kind of more honest look at how hip-hop culture really is experienced we can begin to shift or reimagine how we look at hip-hop as a culture to this idea that kind of canadian hip-hop particularly is understudied and underappreciated and this collection can serve as a way to kind of instill value into our own contributions as a country um now that this book has obviously been published and i'm sure you've started to get some feedback on the works how do you kind of see the purpose for this book um now in, I guess, in the, the first week of 2021? Hmm. Well, I would say that um, I am happy, or let me think of that through. I think the book has value in that it's going to, and it is opening doors or um, avenues, sites into uh, different kinds of hip hop that is happening uh, across, you know, or all around Canada, um, and that there's, you know, much more to Canadian hip hop than Drake, for example, which is, you know, like sure. Especially, you know, in the mainstream, is like, you know, we become recognized for those artists that make it commercial, that are commercially successful. Yes. And, and I think, you know, um, we know, and people, if they if they think about that at all, know, and you know, that that that's not all there is. Um, but I think what this book is is suggesting and contributing to is that there's a, a rich diversity of hip-hop makers 
and hypocrisy uh, all over this country, um, and that there are many stories being told uh, through hip hop and through the hip hop, all the different arts uh, associated with hip hop culture, and that um, you know there is a great offering here of of diverse voices and experiences and knowledge that is worthwhile um, uh, to to get to know and to listen to and to engage with. And that's, I think, at, at the sort of bottom, the foundation of what, you know, Mark and I were attempting to do. We certainly could not offer uh, a full history or a, um, you know, a, a full representation of all of the hip hop, uh, you know, cultures, identities, scenes, events going on because yeah. it's so, there are so many. And I think that's the other thing that's really key is that, you know, there's, there are, you know, there are particular kinds of uh, hip hop um, happening in Canada that are, that isn't happening elsewhere, and that's important too, and important to recognize. And so, whether it's you know thinking about the diaspora and how that works within Canada, thinking about that, especially uh, you know in in some of the chapters that very much engage, and others the the sort of what does it mean for indigenous voices and thinking about hip hop through an indigenous lens and why that's so rich and important, especially at this place at this moment, uh, after and thinking about, you know, the truth and reconciliation, the, 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 the murdered and missing, missing indigenous women, all of these very important conversations and, um, hopefully actions that are happening to, to think and to work through these ongoing historical and, and, and ongoing injustices. Um, I think these are, these are where a lot of rich conversations are happening. And, you know, it doesn't, it, to me, it makes sense to be looking to the arts and in particular looking to uh, hip hop, especially if you're interested in looking and listening to young people and their voices and their stories. Beautiful. Um, I can't thank you enough again for for taking the time out to, to speak to me here. Um, I've enjoyed reading the text immensely. I recommend it to anyone listening. Um, and your comp- uh, contributions to it remain insightful and thought provoking. So again, thank you. Um, I'd love to have you back on again when future work is being published. Um, I, yeah, 100 percent. I would love to have you back on this podcast sometime in the future whenever it feels appropriate. Anyhow, um, for those listening at home. Can you tell the people where they can find a copy of, of We Still Hear, Hip Hop North of the 49th Parallel, where they can pick it up? For sure. Hopefully your local bookstore would have it. I know that for us that's really uh, key. Um, but, uh, you, I mean, you can certainly, it, it is, it's hard to know where to say this because everybody is all over the place. But hopefully that your local bookstore would have it. Um, and also, I mean, you can find it online. I don't want to, uh, <laughs> I don't want to like, you know, um, you know, anyway, I'll just leave it at that. How about that? Would that be okay? That's more Alex, than sufficient. I don't want to tout like Amazon or anything. So, like, That's fair. I've, I've followed a number of, 
I followed a number of authors within the 2020, uh, well, I guess, yeah, 2020 that, um, we're, we're very adamant about not promoting Amazon links to their, their publications despite their, um, despite their presses, um, insisting that it be on those, uh, those portals. So I fully understand and see where you're coming from. Um, but yes, thank you so much again for coming on. It's been, it's been a blast of a conversation. Hopefully you've enjoyed this as well. Um, this is um, my favorite thing to do is to talk about hip hop, hip hop history and, and just hip hop studies in general. And to be able to have these conversations on a regular basis is a blessing. So thank you. Uh, 